Hello. When we launched this podcast, we said we'd continue the focus of Bridges to the Future on ideas and debate, but have a, a slightly stronger emphasis on leadership and practical action. Now, I've spent the last few days reading a book called The Activist Leader, A New Mindset for Doing Business. And in a moment, I'll introduce its co-author, Lucy Parker. This is, though, I need to admit, not the kind of book I would normally choose to pick up. I tend to find leadership books a bit, well, a bit trite, a bit tiresome. And I find books about corporate responsibility a bit boosterish, a bit naive. Both genres have a propensity for to-do lists, often designed so that each item begins conveniently with the same letter. Now, I'm going to admit that there were a few times when the activist leader aroused these prejudices, but as I read it, I gradually got more engaged. By the end, I felt it was addressing some really important questions and being pretty bold about the answers. So, being a nice chap, I'm going to give Lucy some time to lay out her argument and offer us some examples of activist leadership. But then, just like the book, I'm going to turn to some of the chewier questions raised by the idea that the leaders of big business can help us save the world. Brought to you by the Forward Institute, you're listening to the show that offers a fresh perspective on how to manage change and lead from the front. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. So, Lucy, thank you so much for joining me. You are the author of The Activist Leader, along with John Miller. So I'm going to ask you the first question, so the kind of first question in the job interview, isn't it? Why did you write the book? Well, I think we wrote it because we have been working in this field for over 12 years. And the proposition at the heart of the work and the heart of the book is that if you are a leader in a big business today, you need to deliver financial value hand in hand with social value. Now, most business leaders are very adept at the financial value bit. They grew up with it. They were trained in it. It's how they got to their leadership positions in their businesses. The social value bit is relatively new. And most of them struggle with what it even means, let alone how to do it. And because we've been working in this field for over 10 years, we've seen a lot of business and a lot of business leaders struggle with it, work with it, do some things very successfully, fall into some traps and so forth. And these days, most business leaders one meets goes, yes, you're right. We are expected to do that. We even know we need to do that. But then their eyes narrow and they kind of tilt their heads and go, yes, but how is the question? So we wanted to lay out as much as we knew so far about how. And we believe that the patterns of doing it are very, very clear. The people who lead in this field are all working to a similar set of principles. And once you spot them, they're really clear. And if you want to do it, you can follow those pictures. Great. So I guess the next question is, tell us, define for us, what an activist leader is. It's a very important question because if you're in the world of business particularly, activism doesn't have a very good rep at the moment. You fear for them. You think it's a shareholder activist coming to take you down. You think it's a NGO activist coming to shame you in public. So on the whole, business leaders recoil from the language of activism. And actually what we're trying to say is turn that round. If you look at what activists actually are, business leaders can and should be it. So what we think is at the heart of activism 
is that you look at a challenging problem, a really big, stark, difficult, intractable challenge. And when you look at it, you see very clearly what the contours are. And you think, I could do something about that. I could help. That's something to do with me. And you step towards it and you start to want to find solutions. Not you alone. Interestingly, activists know how to mobilize others. They assume they're not the whole answer, but they do feel that it has something to do with them and that they need to act on it. And all time, through all place, through all history, that's really what's been at the soul of activism. And so our argument is you need to own that fact. When you look at the challenges in the world today that surround business and indeed the big societal issues that have now become business issues, the only way of tackling them is to step towards them, assume that they have something to do with you and start working with others to find solutions. A large part of the book, Lucy, is made up of a set of ideas around, as it were, how to think like an activist. And what I want you to do is I'm going to choose a couple of those kind of elements of that and ask you to explain a bit more about that particular idea. And the book, of course, is full of concrete examples. There are a number of companies that you go into some depth about the leadership and the activist leadership and the real impact and change that they've had. So let's start with the idea of pivot. That's one of your principles for thinking like activists. What do you mean by pivot? As I go into that thought, just to say, I so agree with you. The power of the idea of the examples is that for a lot of people, because this whole way of operating is new, it's a different model of thinking about how you play your role in society. I find a lot of business leaders sort of go, is this real? Is this a sort of utopia? If only it could happen, wouldn't it be great? So the point of 20, 30 stories we talk about is this is happening. This is going on. And you can see it very clearly. Pivot is absolutely the heart of it. It's brilliant for you to put your finger on exactly that one. It's right at the heart of it. So there's a, a mindset in the corporate arena, if you're not careful, that they see themselves as a kind of citadel. There's great big walls up around them and the CEO stands on the parapets and looks out and tries to squash all the issues around them. And they're certainly outside the gates of the castle. They're protecting themselves. And so issues in the world are their impact on themselves. At the heart of being an activist is you go, that question. That question is food waste. Maybe it's biodiversity. Maybe it's skills. Actually turn towards the problem. Look at the problem and turn into it. Pivot towards it. Because that gives you an entirely different way of operating with it. Instead of saying the NGO activists are challenging us because we're not doing enough on climate, Go out and actually face the issue on climate. Think it through for yourself. Understand it and go, what are we to that question? What could we do about it? Pivot towards it. Don't protect yourself from it and turn away. Really interesting. And that implies, I think, also that quite often in these companies, there's been a kind of moment of crisis. There's been yes. a moment of inflection. I mean, the most famous example, of course, is Nike literally in public, they kind of pivoted from a position of saying that their supply chain was nothing to do with them to taking complete responsibility for it and led to a kind of sea change in attitudes around supply chains. That's a perfect example of a pivot, exactly. In your experience, is it often the case that companies have to reach a kind of crisis point, a moment of inflection, rather than this being something which kind of gradually creeps up on them, but there comes a point and they have to make a choice? Yes and no. A lot of the famous ones are that because the change is so dramatic. It's also two slightly different interpretations of it. One of the examples we cite, which I think explains the idea very clearly, is we talked about 
Standard Chartered and financial crime. There was a moment when Standard Chartered was all the wrong side of the headlines, fined for lapses in governance of their processes and so forth. And initially their take was, well, we want to demonstrate to the world, don't we, that actually all those problems have gone away. We've invested in clearing up those problems. And then they took another look at it and said, well, why are financial institutions these days being chased so hard by the regulators, being challenged so hard by civil society organizations? Actually, it's because the financial system globally has become a very easy place for criminals to do their business. And so they suddenly set themselves the ambition to help make the financial system a hostile place for criminals. They actually faced into the issue, said the issue is bigger than us as an organization, and we're going to try and step towards it. We're going to see what we can do to help. And by the way, no company can do it alone. No activist can do it alone. They mobilize others to do it. But to your point, that wasn't exactly a moment of crisis, but it was the nous to turn a crisis into an opportunity, which is an adjacent but not completely similar idea. I think what you're seeing also more of now is that as these very big issues are pressing in, biodiversity and the big agricultural businesses, climate and the heavy emitting industries, and you're starting to see investors go, can you just talk about the long-term sustainability of your business model. People are starting to go, we have to build a long-term sustainability here. So there's a long time frame, but they are seeing for themselves the crisis and starting to change their processes to work towards it. And now investors are starting to go, there's an opportunity in getting that right and getting it right sooner than other people. And so people are starting to invest in the opportunity. So the big famous stories are often a crisis, but there are others where the challenge made them rethink and these days, you're increasingly seeing that really the game here is long-term sustainable business and how you adapt yourself in time. And I think that, Lucy, links to another one of your, this list of thinking like an activist leader. So you talk about the notion of core. Um, and I guess what we're getting to here is the old discredited model of corporate responsibility was that the company did what it wanted to do to maximize profits. <laughs> it was slightly random good deeds. Exactly. And the periphery of the organization led by the kind of PR department or CSR department or whatever. The notion of core is very different to that. Yes. And interestingly, it goes back to your previous question about is it a challenge? Is it a crisis? Is it a taking an opportunity? A neat way to describe it is through the story of Coca-Cola. Biggest producer of plastic and therefore plastic waste into the world. And they suddenly thought this just won't do. This isn't good for the brand. It isn't good for the world. It isn't going to work. And they took it into their core. Now, there's lots of ways in which they take it into their core. But one way which is fascinating, and you're seeing more and more across business, is if you're going to reduce the plastic waste you put into the world, you better know what plastic waste you're putting into the world. And so they measured it for the first time. Until that point, the business had never measured it. And suddenly, every country manager, 160-odd country managers, started to define what the plastic waste was in their market. And then the business started to report it transparently, annually. And in so doing, if you're a big company like that, you're not only producing your data for your own action plan, but you're setting a new norm in the industry. They can do it. Why can't other people manage their plastic waste in the same way? And then if you ask the CEO, how does he deal with that? He says, well, I have strategic plans for everything else I run in the business. I expect that to report to me and come up with solutions and come up with timetables and come up with commitments in the way I expect every other part of the business to do it. 
And then actually the plastic itself is the problem. So they're in partnership with innovators to create different forms of plastic made from different sources. So that is the core business adapting itself to what will be a long-term challenge and is increasingly becoming a pressure point. One of the chapters in the book, it's a short chapter, but I found most interesting and found myself nodding my head to particularly was around purpose. Um, so I'm quite suspicious of this idea of purpose, that it's often a bit a blather, really. Now, you critique purpose from a slightly different direction. As I understand it, what you're saying about purpose is that purpose falls into one of two kind of errors. It either tries to suggest that large corporations with investors are really about doing good in the world. And so therefore, it's just not true because actually these companies have to be profitable companies. They have to be successful companies. So to suddenly kind of suggest, well, we are here, I don't know, to make the world a better place is not helpful. It's inauthentic. Or it goes the other way, which is you have a really strong purpose statement, but it only applies to things that you do at the periphery, it applies to your good deeds and doesn't apply to the mainstream business. So I found that really interesting. And it goes to the heart of an argument that you make throughout the book, which is that being an activist leader means aligning the company's long-term interests with what the world needs. Is that right? Yes, it is. And I really agree with the playback of those two points. And I think I'd go even a bit further. I agree that purpose put that way, if you're not careful, we literally think of it as the pitfalls of purpose, understand why people are reaching for the word purpose. But just stay on that thought for a moment. I've worked with a lot of companies who say, can you come in and talk to us about our purpose? And we go, mm-hmm. Why do you want to talk about your purpose? And almost universally, the answer that comes back is, well, people think we're bad. And some version of what comes next is they think we're extracting value from society. We're making our profits at the expense of everything and everybody else. So we don't want them to think that. We want to rethink our purpose. And to me, there's the biggest and most important clue for big business in that view. Actually, what I think is driving this movement towards rethinking purpose is not purpose, it's externalities. Companies and big companies today are throwing off such massive externalities, plastic waste being one or carbon emissions being another, or the challenges of business models that can't pay living wage and so forth. These are costs that go beyond their own definition of profitable success and their business model. And the world at large is paying for those charges. They're external to the business model. And so a lot of the drivers to companies thinking about purpose is they're being asked to consider those externalities. And I have experienced that what happens is then they capture all that stuff. And just like you say, they kind of make all the good stuff, the purpose stuff. And then they go, well, we've got profit and purpose. And no, you are a company that is doing what it's doing in the world. Of course, you're making profit. It's a success factor for you. Well done. The question really these days is how are you making your profit? Not what is your purpose so much, but how are you making profit? I mean, one of the famous stories, and it's almost not fair because it was obviously an error, but Hellman's mayonnaise found themselves tripped into the public arena by saying Hellman's mayonnaise purpose is to combat climate change. Well, it literally makes you laugh. That's not true. That's not Hellman's purpose. It is Hellman grappling with their externalities. And in this effort to try and say something good about themselves, businesses forget that really what they're being asked is to explain why they're adding value, not extracting value from society at large. And that answer 
isn't necessarily changing your purpose. It's changing how you make your profits. Now, Lucy, I'm not critical of the book. I actually, as I said in the introduction, I became a real convert to the book. I found it really interesting and it changed my view. But here's a couple of kind of trickier questions, maybe. The first is you talk a lot about a whole variety of businesses, Apple, Anglo-American, Coca-Cola, BP, H&M, IBM, JP Morgan Chase. You talk about the things that they want to talk about in a sense. So you talk about the things that they are proud of as activist leaders. But how confident are you that if you looked at those businesses in the round, so you didn't just look at the bit that they want you to look at, which is the bit where the CEO is chair has decided to try to make a difference. Do you think you'll be then equally positive if you were looking in the, to those businesses in the round? It's a great question. I look at it a bit differently. I think that these businesses are massive engines. I don't think it's even about being good businesses or bad businesses. That's, I find, a really unhelpful construct. It's how are they operating in the world? How are they contributing to the world? And at any given time, they may be doing something fantastically imaginative, constructive, positive, making a difference. And at the same time, there's another area to critique them on. I think that what we're looking at here is how we can show that there is a new breed of leadership coming through, which is taking seriously that the way you run the company, the way you make your profits, actually has to add up to something that delivers societal value, doesn't extract it. And so the examples we're talking about aren't just, oh, the CEO's proud of talking about it, so let's look at that. They are very often generated out of a challenge to the organization that they need to do better on this issue. And then you get to the whole question of, are they just pointing at the positive? Are they greenwashing? Are they grandstanding when they shouldn't? The model that we're explaining here is look at what they're saying, but look more at what they're actually doing. And you can see very, very clearly if they are actually setting targets, not just targets, because those can be done little, small, peripheral, and doesn't disturb the business. But are these the kinds of scales of targets and initiatives that are in the core of the business and crucially commensurate with the scale of the challenge and commensurate with the scale of the business? We're saying, look for that target, look for that plan, look for that transparency, look for whether they keep up momentum. And our experience is that if you have a leader who starts to understand how to do that, how to work with a big intractable problem like that, they typically apply it more and more across all the things in the business. And a lot of the things that are genuinely problematic today wasn't because there was some villain in the corner twizzling the moustache going, we're going to mess everybody up. It was because palm oil has become one of the world's great success stories as a product. In so doing, it's chopping down the forest. So... It's about how you reframe the question for them and help businesses and business leaders look at the fact that if they want to be successful as a business, they've got to take to the core that they work on the most challenging things energetically to scale with proof points, with targets, with measures transparently and keep going. That's not just a CEO wanting to tell you something they're proud of. This is a dialogue with society about where are the problematical areas and where should businesses be busy acting proactively? Now, this is a point, Lucy, about the companies that you have worked with or that you know. Obviously, it's not a book about bad business. And yet, you know, if you just use the word villains, you know, if you think about the companies that people would really rate very badly, water companies in the UK, for example. Huh. Tell me, you must have approached companies, spoken to leaders, of in the end 
not been willing to become activists, not been willing to grasp this stuff properly. Is there a particular characteristic, is there a particular tell in your experience of those who in the end are going to say, no, actually, this isn't our responsibility. We're going to carry on and let the long term look after itself. I think there are very few that go as far as that, that go, we're just not going to be in it. What I think you see much more often is, do we really have to do that much? Do we really have to be open to it changing the business model? And it isn't an attitude or capability that most people leading businesses today have, as it were, grown up through their business careers doing. So this is learning a whole new set of skills. And I think one of the things you point out in, for example, the water companies and so on, who are currently under pressure, one of the things we're showing or hoping to bring alive in writing about this is when companies do approach this with this attitude, with this activist approach and work this model, they can make progress. So to me, you turn to those companies and go, get on with this model. It won't do to be in the public trust of a product like water and expecting society to pick up those externalities. We should absolutely double down on companies that don't do that. But part of the point of writing is that there is a different way of approaching. You'd better be able to explain why you're not changing your business model to drive out those externalities, why you're not working in partnership with governments and civil society and innovators to find new solutions, why you're not calling for the right solutions yourself. And one of the things, interestingly, in the sort of steps we outline is every single leading company today in this space is driving for system-wide change. It's almost the defining characteristic of the leading companies. They're not going, well, I've sorted the water crisis in my own backyard. How are you doing it systemically for society? And they become adept at that ecosystem model. And that is the new way of doing business. That is a new leadership characteristic. So this is an optimistic book in the sense that you think that activist leadership is growing. And you do talk at the end, Lucy, about investment. But I guess let me share with you where my pessimism comes from. Mm, mm. I was on a board, actually, business in the community board, and somebody was there who ran a business. Mm -hmm. And he said at one point, I don't really spend any of my time working on my business and what it does anymore because we've become so financialized that all I really focus is on how I use the money, all that kind of financial stuff. It wasn't really about what his business did. Now, when I read the book, most of these activist leaders, what they're interested in is about what they do. It's about the core purpose of the business. When I say purpose, I mean it's core business. But a lot of companies, like those water companies, for example, some of those water companies, one suspects that their indifference to the public good and even to public opinion is partly to do with the fact they're not really owned by people who run, they're owned by hedge funds, they're owned by investors who are only in it really to make money and have got sufficient distance from the company that they're not really affected by the kind of reputational issues. And then another challenge is that a lot of investment is really run by algorithms. There's nobody really making the kind of decisions you want active investors to make. The money's just shuffling around on the basis of share price movements or whatever. So there is no owner in that sense. So why would I be wrong to be pessimistic about the fact that the financialization of capitalism means that the people who really have the power, the investors, are increasingly not people who are close enough to the business to even care about the kinds of things you write about? It's such an important point. And in a way, I think 
what we're beginning to see is that the next frontier is where's the investment community, where's the money on this? And in many ways, that part of the ecosystem of getting these changes underway has been too invisible and I think people are turning to it. So the optimism question is an interesting one. One of the things that's making this approach to leadership more common is the fact that it's now so much more prominent on the radar screens in the investment community than it was three years ago. It has really changed the way a lot of investment managers operate. And behind them are a couple of reasons. Actually, huge wealth transfer coming up generationally, it's perfectly clear that actually where the money is in individual pockets that fuels the pension funds and so on. These people are asking for a different kind of investment. They are beginning to push the investors. But you're also seeing that it's starting to come clear that behaving like this actually is in the long-term sustainable interest of the business. If you want to sustain the profits of the business, you're going to have to go there. Now, that might be because you're an agricultural business and literally the crops you were counting on aren't growing in the same places at the same speed that they were before. Or it is that every country in the world practically is going to be regulating around carbon and your business will have no option but to change. Or it's around the fact that the biggest countries in the world are pouring money into innovation and new energy. The degree to which this has become central in the capital markets cannot be underestimated. Now, that's creating a lot of noise of its own. In America, you say, particularly with the polarization of the debate politically. But that is politicization of something that's happening underneath with a very, very strong undertow because sustainable profits require it. So I think we're starting to see the investors come behind this. I think the optimism question is interesting. You interpret it as optimistic. I would maybe put it another way. I'm more interested in the fact that these responses to these crises are becoming imperative. And one of the principles really at the heart of our argument is most people, if they look at collapse of food systems, crisis in biodiversity, inequality everywhere, most people look at these problems and go, wow, I feel pretty helpless in the face of this. If you have a leadership position in a big organization today, you are not helpless. You have levers to pull. And you as an individual, your organization and your system need you to pull those levers. So there's an imperative to do it. And interestingly, I think leaders of this mindset, a lot of the strongest business leaders want the problem on the table. They pride themselves in their innovative capability. They pride themselves in looking at a problem and finding solutions. They want the plan. And when they start to see that this actually is central to their business and imperative, they start to ask for that plan. That is a new movement. And it's why it's, if you like, a matter of leadership, not a matter of management. And this is not management of the steady state. This is about how we forge new solutions that are imperative in the world and imperative for long-term sustainable business. And business leaders have some levers they can pull. So Lucy, final question, and it relates to some of what you've just said. And I'm not a natural pessimist. I am very worried about the state of the world, I have to admit. But I did read an article recently that I recognised the argument and it did make me feel particularly, I don't know, bleak. And it was a review by David Runciman in the London Review of Books of Martin Wolf's most recent book. Now, Martin Wolf's most recent book argues, very convincingly, that capitalism and democracy, 
need each other and that capitalism relies on democracy for legitimacy and democracy relies upon capitalism for economic dynamism and growth and invention. Yeah. But that what has happened is that capitalism and democracy have failed to work effectively together. And Martin Wolf describes a whole set of things, many of which I suspect you would agree with, I would agree with, which might help to get this relationship back on track. But the point David Runciman makes is he says, look, I agree with all of this, but how is any of it going to happen? Because what Martin Wolf wants is he wants governments that act for the long term, that do the right thing, that don't just respond to the latest headline or don't indulge in kind of culture wars and populism. And they want capitalists who similarly take a kind of long view and who, despite financialization, despite globalization, will take seriously the need for the nation state to be able to thrive and to respond to the democratic feelings of people within nations. So basically what Runciman says is, look, I, I agree with all this, but I can't see democratic politics or global capitalism being able to have the will to do the things that need to be done. Now, you have a little chapter in the book about governments. What do we need to do, though, Lucy, to get this conversation between the representatives of democracy, the government, and industry back on track? Because it feels to me as though almost everywhere, it's a pretty broken conversation. I agree. It does feel like that. I think that's maybe a way of looking at it is when you're shining a light on one bit of the system, if you like, or one part of the question, it feels as if it's ring-fenced. We were consciously shining a light on business because in the ecosystem of where solutions come from, it's often overlooked. Many of the big political decisions, many of the multilateral political decisions, always keep business outside the door. These are big, grown-up policy matters. Business shouldn't be here because of vested interest. We're now at a time when big businesses cross borders in a way like practically no other institution does. So. On one hand, that brings all kinds of risks on their scale and the difficulty of holding them accountable in any geography. But in another way, it also gives them a perspective on global problems that no national government has. And it also gives them ways of operating where these big questions land in different places in the world in different ways. And they're becoming very adept at dealing with these questions. And so the collapse of the food system or the challenge to the climate question, these are cross-border questions. And businesses are cross-border institutions these days, even small ones. And so part of the argument is that we actually need governments to engage with business because we won't find new solutions and new ways of operating if we don't engage business in it. And culturally, in the public imagination and politically amongst policymakers, we do it far too little. And we need the implementation capability, the innovation capability, and we need the scale deployment to make any of the next kinds of solutions practical. And interestingly, the interplay between government and business is often when you look up close that almost every big innovation has a government partnership in it somewhere. And there's a duality of governments needing something to happen, maybe on skills, maybe on renewable energy. They're needing to look to business to implement it. And yet at the same time, they won't regulate or create policy until they can begin to see that it's actually feasible, that the companies can actually create new ways of operating. So there is a dialogue going on 
often at city level, often at regional level, that gets missed out of the picture. But almost every big business innovation is somewhere hand in hand with government. So I think we may be overstating the degree to which these parts of society don't work together. Do we need a lot more of it? Yes. Do we need a lot more activist leadership? Yes. That's why we wrote it. There's some of this going on. It's not a, a utopia that doesn't exist. It's a way of operating that is making its way to the forefront. And a big inhibitor is lots of people can't imagine it, which is why it's so valuable to tell it through examples. In part, all over the world, people are doing this and we need a lot more of it. Yes. And I, I wonder whether this is an issue that might surface as we move towards the next election. I mean, this is a government which we've had so many different prime ministers. When I say this government, I mean the government of Theresa May set up an industrial strategy council. Yes. And was interested in this notion of missions, which of course now Labour has adopted, although not quite in the kind of industrial mission sense, in a kind of broader sense. You quote Mariana Mazzucato a couple of times in your book. So I wonder whether it's only a few years since we had a Labour leader who was pretty much anti-capitalist and of course the Prime Minister who famously said F-U-C-K business. So these things change. Perhaps when we get to the next election, this question of which party is best able to have a grown-up and challenging conversation with business will be an issue. Completely. Let's see. Well, look, Lucy, thank you so much for joining me and I recommend your book, The Activist Leader. Thank you. So, as I said, The Activist Leader is not the kind of book I would normally have chosen to read, but I'm really glad that I did. Who knows, presenting forward vision may change my mind about a few other things as well. And who knows, maybe yours too. See you next time. And by the way, if you've enjoyed the show, do please put a review in the appropriate place on whatever podcast platform or app you use. It really does make a difference. Thanks a lot. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.